In today's show, we are joined by Andrew Fury. Now, Andrew is a longtime real estate investor and a licensed realtor that works throughout the Niagara region. And he is going to share a little bit of insight into how he got started in real estate, some of the various strategies that he's used over the years, as well as some life lessons that he's learned. Now, Andrew is also very well adversed in economic fundamentals, and he keeps his eye on what's going on within the Niagara region. So if you're an investor that's investing in Niagara or thinking about investing in Niagara region, then this show is going to be very informative for you. So sit back, relax, and take lots of copious notes, providing that it is safe to do so. And I think you'll be both educated uh, as well as entertained as Andrew likes to crack a few uh, jokes throughout the show. So uh, hopefully you enjoy this show and let's begin. Are you looking for financial independence? Would you like more peace and liberation in your life? Are you ready to forge your destiny? Well, you're in the correct place at the correct time. And I'm glad you're here live from Canada, broadcasting around the world. You're listening to the Care More Work Less Show with your host, real estate-based wealth coach, Jeffrey Woods. Now, let's get on with the show. All right. Well, today I am joined with, by the one and only Andrew Fury. Andrew, welcome to the Care More, Work Less show. I'm uh, excited to dive into some content today, and uh, I'm glad you're here with us. Me too. Glad to be here. It's uh, kind of flattering that you don't know anybody more qualified than me. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, well, you're, you're a very humble guy, but I definitely think you're qualified to be here. I know uh, firsthand you've got lots and lots of knowledge to share, and so that's why I wanted you on the show. Sure. Um, so let's start with perhaps the the folks that don't know you. Uh, let's get a bit of your background and how you got into real estate. Uh, sure. I. Um... I used to be in the uh, automotive industry, so I was a detailer, uh, did some light body restoration, that type of thing, and my mom had always been in real estate and was thinking about retiring, and I looked at it and I said, geez, you know, you've got a big book of business here, mom, that it would be a waste just to turn it over, so uh, I gave it some serious thought, said, yeah, this is how I'm going to make my living, and uh, bought her out of the business. She and I worked together for a while and then uh, made the transition fully to myself, and it was just a very good fit. Uh, you, know, you, you hear it said that Canada has a bit of a real estate addiction, and uh, there is some truth to that, but it's also one of those things that people need to buy and sell and move and not just necessarily for investment purposes. So it does afford a pretty good lifestyle for us. So, yeah. Nice. Mm -hmm. Awesome. And so within uh, real estate, tell us uh, kind of, what area of focus, like what type of investment properties do you prefer? Yeah, that, uh, that's a great question. Jeff. There's, there's so many of them. Uh, it's kind of hard to narrow down sometimes. So uh, my wife and I have uh, a, a couple of different styles of properties. We do uh, home flipping with my parents and we do uh, a couple of rent to owns, which are um, kind of a neat idea because they help people out, but you also get out of the property within a couple of year time frame. And we've also got true buy and hold 
uh, rental properties, which are really the ultimate long-term wealth creation strategy, as I'm sure you have told your listeners repeatedly over the head, beating them in it with it. So, um, so we've got a, a variety of, of different ways in the real estate market of investing. Uh, but my my personal favorite is uh, recently is the, is the rent to owns because we can see um, it scratches the short term itch of flipping. It satisfies the desire I have to help some people out uh, who can't get into a house now, but really should be into a house. And then it also makes us a little bit of money. So it, it checks a lot of the boxes that we like, particularly that way. So. Great. Now, maybe dive a little bit deeper into the rent to own strategy. Could you explain how an investor would would uh, get involved in a rent to own? Sure. Uh, this Probably the best way would, would be the way I started doing it, which is to uh, contact a company that does it on, on a larger scale full time. Uh, so I, I was at a, a trade show a number of years ago and took a business card for a company called JAG. Uh, out of Hamilton, J-A-A-G, and uh, Adam and Alfonso run that property company, and I think they're almost at 100 different rent-to-own properties now if they're not in excess of that, and so they do it a lot. They do it professionally and ethically, and it was a great way to get introduced to that style of investment, and then taking what I learned from them, I was able to do one on my own separate from them uh, to help a good friend out, so it was... um, it's kind of a good strategy because you you end up getting somebody who's close to being able to qualify, but maybe not for one reason or another. Um, I was at a presentation last week by Genworth, and Genworth gave us an idea of their average borrower right now. And in the Niagara region, the average borrower makes $102,000 a year. Uh, they've been at their job six, just over six years, and they have a very healthy gross um debt service ratio of about 25%, which means that they should be able to qualify for a property. Um, They've also got a very high credit score with most borrowers, like 91% of borrowers being above 660 as a credit score. So they they should be able to, but for one reason or another, maybe they are are getting a divorce or they've had some credit blemishes or they just don't make quite enough income or they're like me and they're self-employed and the banks are a little skittish. Um, and they want to get into the market now, what we do is we get them into the house, uh, I buy it, and then uh, we sign a, a lease with them for three years from now to purchase it, and we set it up that their their rent is going to be this much, and at the end of it, they get a credit back of $100 uh, every month that they pay on time. They also have a, a deposit or a down payment that forms part of their down payment down the road, and then when they get the property, in three years, we've made sure that we work with them all the way along with the uh, with the credit and the mortgage people so that they're able to buy the house and they've got in and around 10 to 15 percent down by that time. So it's it's a really helpful program. It does sometimes get a bit of a bad name because uh, mm-hmm. there are there are some you know, unscrupulous types in real estate. <laughs> Go figure. Right. That anytime there's a chance to make money, there'd be people with uh, a bit of a skewed moral compass. But. Um, so it does get a bit of a bad name that way because a lot of times people in the past would just put you into whatever house, take your deposit money, and when you couldn't afford it, they'd take it back. And right. so, yeah, that's that's not really what it's designed to do. It's designed to help you. And so uh, we make sure that we don't buy a house and then try to find somebody for it. We work with somebody who's already able to do it. We go and buy the house they want, 
and then in three years from now it's theirs. So it right. really is a better better way to do it. I, I like that system quite a bit. Yeah, so you're you're really trying to um, help help the end buyer out by getting them into a home that they otherwise wouldn't qualify for. Exactly, because even and, uh, you know, my my dad and I've had this conversation a few different times about the cost of things now versus what we make um, as a, as an income. And uh, if if you look at the average in the last five years, I get some numbers here, which is why I keep going with my eyes off screen. Um, if you look at the average increase in home values over the last five years, uh, it's 2016 was a 17% increase, 2015 was 7%, 2014 was 7.5%. With those types of increases every year, even if you were able to save up a bit of money for a down payment, by the time you can save up your 5 or 10%, the house is now up 17%. You haven't been able to save that much. And so mm -hmm. get them into the house now versus later on. So. Great. Now you mentioned you get a uh, a deposit up front, and Correct. typically, what type of deposit are you looking for? Um, is it a percentage of the purchase price, or is it a flat kind of yeah, deposit that, that fee? Would, that would probably be a better question for uh, the guys at Jag who do a lot of them, and so they they want to scale it. Probably, I would think they use a percentage. For us, it was just um, we looked and worked backwards, and we said, okay, so here's your end purchase price. Uh, and we want to make sure that you have at least 10%. So if 10% of for easy figuring $300,000 in three years, you need to save about $10,000 per year, which is a lot of money. So if you have 10 now, you can save eight over the next three. And then with the rent credits, it brings you still up to that 30. So we worked it backwards and we said, we'll take an $8,000 deposit. So, but yeah, for us, it was a dollar, but a lot of times I think percentage is easier. Okay. Great, great. Now, I know, too, um, over the years, you've gotten pretty creative with some of your uh, investments, uh, both in finding the deals um, and then putting them together, raising the financing. Uh, so let's dive into that a little bit, and uh, perhaps you could share some of your, your most creative investments. Sure. Sure. Well, you know, the, the one one of the neat things about real estate is it's ever changing. And one of the frustrating things about real estate is that it's ever changing. Um, mm. So a couple of years ago when we bought uh, our first true rental property that, that we're going to keep and hold for a long time, uh, we took some equity out of our home to do it. And at the time, that was the best fit because we had a lot of equity. And being self-employed, the bank said, eh, the income's okay, but it's not what we'd like to see. And so we were able to pull from uh, the equity in the house. Well, fast forward 18 months, there's been a bunch of sales around where I live that are not comparable properties. But when the bank does an appraisal on my house now, it's about $150,000 less than it was two years ago. And I haven't sold it don't plan on selling it, but that's just a change in the real estate market that would not have let me do the same types of things now. So it's, it's a fun thing that you have to be creative with all the time. Uh, a lot of times we've done, uh, actually the, the building right beside yours that we did was probably the most fun in terms of creativity. Um, we had to put a low ball offer in, which we don't like to do. Um, and then ask for a vendor take back mortgage. Usually you get one or the other, um, but we, we got the vendor to hold the mortgage for us. And then we ended up with uh, two private lenders on it. And the one was a good friend, so he took, did it on a handshake. 
and the other wanted a um, an equity, like a first position stake on the property, which we couldn't give them because uh, we already had the mortgage holder there. And so we had to do some uh, you know, personal collateralization uh, of the property that we own. And uh, it worked out. It was a little bit cumbersome at the lawyers and that, but it was certainly uh, easy and worthwhile. And then when we turned that house for a tidy little profit, um, suddenly everybody's uh, okay with doing a little bit of extra legwork. So, Yeah, nice. Yeah, it's always about, um, you know, being creative and finding a way, right? It's where there's a will, there's a way. And surrounding yourself with other like-minded real estate investors that have done some of these strategies and found the creative ways, uh, I find is is very helpful and informative. It is helpful because there's lots of strategies out there uh, and one person can't know them all, but you just need to know the people that do. So, you know, somebody that specializes in vendor take-back mortgages is a great person to know. Somebody that has a large wealth of people who have private money is a great way to go. Um, so, yeah, you don't have to know them all, uh, all the strategies, but it's better to learn the more the most you can by surrounding yourself with those types of people. Yeah, it's all about uh, your network, right? Proximity Absolutely. to greatness and um, modeling those that have gone before you. Yep. Well, they, they say that your network is equal to your net worth. And uh, so... I think I find that true the older I get and the longer I'm in real estate. So, yeah, for sure. Now I know um, there was another deal you were telling me about that I I found quite interesting where the seller actually became the tenant. Uh, Yes. Um, I've actually noticed that trend probably in the last three or four years in real estate uh, that a a larger percentage of my clientele were in their sixties and seventies thinking about downsizing to rent. And as a realtor, my first thought is, well, why would you give up something that you own to go to something that you would rent? But uh, once a couple of them explained it to me and I started to see things through their perspective a little differently, uh, it started to make a bit more sense. So uh, a perfect example is, is a lady I moved a couple of years ago. She was 75 and her house was paid for a long time ago. But her property taxes continued to go up and they didn't go up uh, commensurate with what she was getting for pension. Uh, And she's also in an older home. And so by being in an older home, you've got some repairs to expect. And even though you're not going to embark on a full in-depth cosmetic renovation um, for somebody at 75 on a pension and, you know, government subsidy and some of those things, they have to bite off ten or twelve thousand bucks to do a roof. It's a big nut to cover, and if you you know get some water in a basement or something, uh, you know this particular lady had a furnace and an air conditioner go at the same time as she needed a bunch of new windows, and it was going to be like a forty thousand dollar investment. So she ended up doing it because she was going to get it back on the house, but she had to sell it to get the money back because that's a big chunk to take out of somebody at that stage of their life. So she said, "But you know, if I go and I rent something, even at a thousand or fifteen hundred dollars a month. I know that I don't have those capital expenses that come up to bite me, and I also don't have to worry about increases in my property tax. All I have to do is pay my rent and be a good person. And um, so that was sort of one of these mind shifts for me. That's hey, you know what? Okay, there's not always a big market for it, but it makes sense for certain people. And we were approached, my wife and I, by uh, a lady who I had sold the house next door a few years prior. She and her husband were in the same stage. They said, you know what, we, we would like to downsize and rent back, but we 
we don't really look that good to somebody on paper because we've got a few dogs and a couple of cats and my husband's on disability and he's a motorcyclist. So, you know, we got bikes in the garage. We don't always look like some, somebody's ideal tenant. So we just like to rent our house back. And my wife and I looked at it and we said, geez, this is a nice property. It's a good neighborhood. We really like the people. Thought this is a great way for everybody to kind of win. And so we, we went and we bid on it. Um, and I've actually had a few people since take that strategy at my recommendation in real estate and say, Hey, let's start looking for tenants that have already owned the home and want to sell it to free up the cash and then rent it back. And it's been a bit an interesting strategy to apply. Great. Now <clears throat> these deals, are you finding them as a result of being a, a realtor or are you using other creative marketing strategies to find these deals? Um, some of them like that, that one there for a uh, perfect example, she called me because I sold the house next door. So I would say that hundred percent right. as a, as a realtor, I found that one. Um, but some of them just do just come by talking to people. Uh, we haven't done a lot of specific marketing like, you know, Kijiji ads or those types of things to find those properties. Um, I know they work because I use them in my real estate business, but we haven't pursued it that way. But a lot of this stuff just comes from still talking to people. Um, I know it sounds a little hokey and I live in a small town, so it's maybe not the same everywhere. But in my small town, I can facilitate an awful lot of transactions just by listening and talking in the grocery store lines or you know, bumping into somebody at the bank waiting in, in the bank queue. So, yeah, I still find that that person-to-person -person interaction is is very high up on, on my list of ways to uh, to generate uh, new leads. Networking. You know, it's it's still a thing, Jeff. It's still <laughs> as much yeah, as it still works. As much as everybody says my generation looks into their phones all the time, those of us that tend to look up still find stuff. So. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Awesome. I, I remember years ago, uh, my parents and I enrolled in a course to help us get into the mindset of financial um, investing through real estate. And one of our coaches uh, was a fellow from, I want to say Denver and big bear of a man, soft-spoken, but just, a, just an enormous presence on stage physically, but also um, in terms of what he had to teach us. And one of the things that he opened with was, you know, to, to give us an idea, he, he was very well off in real estate, but he asked how much anybody in the room thought he spent on marketing in a year to get all of these properties he has under contract and to find all these different tenants. And, you know, the, there are a number of people, right? Some guest a thousand a month, some guest, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. He spends zero, zero dollars on marketing. It's just by building his network and effectively managing it. Uh, and, you know, I'm sure that not everybody may may have that opportunity. He might have a long history in Denver. His family may have been prominent. Who knows what the reasons could be that you'd come up with for debunking how he can do that. But the fact of the matter is he does. He does not spend a dime on marketing, and he is infinitely more successful than a lot of people. So I look and go, you know, there's something to be said for that. You, you, yeah, really, absolutely. you really can just do it by keeping your eyes, ears open, not being afraid to talk to people. One of my best private lenders uh, I happened to meet in a Tim Hortons line down, down at, uh, the Prudhams, uh, Prudhams Landing, Tim Hortons. I was standing there the one morning, uh, 
I'm not even sure how the conversation started, but he noticed I had a jacket on that he recognized the name of. We got talking and we sat down and had that coffee. And by the end of it, he was ready to invest uh, some cash with me. So like it just happens if you talk to people about it. Yeah, absolutely. I know for me as well, over the years, uh, I've found a lot of deals just through networking and creating relationships mm-hmm. with other people that are that are in the industry, whether it's realtors or mortgage agents or bankers or insurance brokers. Yep. Um, even my accountant, I found uh, deals, off-market deals through my accountant, right? So, we um, had the same through our accountants. One of a, again, a private lender came through because the accountant said, Hey, he was saying to me, he needs a place to put some money. Would you guys like as we put them in touch with you? Like it just, they're great. Yeah. yeah another great resource. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. Um, but another great resource is property management companies, right? Because all their clients uh, own real estate. And so sometimes they're looking to buy more or, or sell what they have. And yeah. so it's been another great uh, lead source. Well, and property managers are already a, a good source because they're familiar with the property and they tend to generally have a good knowledge of the market area. And, you know, in the case of Woods and Missoula, they happen to be very good looking guys, too. So they're easy. To <laughs> well, well, thank you. Thank you, Andrew. Um, yeah. So keeping keeping back on the topic of uh, real estate here, <laughs> flattery is always nice, um, but let's stay focused. So the other thing I wanted to talk to you about today is the economic fundamentals of Niagara region. Mm-hmm. Now I know um, you've come out to several of our, our care events and uh, enlightened the, the guests about what's going on in the region. So I wanted to kind of dive in and get a bit of an update. Uh, so perhaps you could um, go into some details about the economics around Niagara and what's going on in the region. Sure. Well, um, the region last year, Niagara region was voted, uh, well, not voted. It's not, <laughs> it's not that day type of process. Uh, it was uh, noticed across the country when they were analyzing statistics that Niagara is the second fastest growing region in Canada. Um, that isn't quite the case this year. It's slowed down a little bit, but it's still in the top five. Um, we had you know, a marginal decrease in sales, like by 10, 10 homes didn't sell as much this year as they did last year in March. It wasn't a big deal there. Um, we've had more new listings. The average price is by, up by 5% already. March of last year was 488000 and change. The average price now is five seventeen. dollars uh, Where I live in Vineland, I've seen that uh, play out quite accurately. And the days on market is slightly longer. Last year is about 26. This year is about 31 we're averaging. But for the most part, that's a healthy number. Uh, it's amazing to me how quickly um, – People adapt to the new norm in some regards. So in 2016 and 17, when the market was superheated and through the roof, you could sell anything in three days. Mm-hmm. And it was amazing to me how quickly everybody assumed that if it sat for longer than 10 days now, the property's got to have something wrong with it or it's got to be stale or somebody died in it or it's a grow house. And that's actually not the case at all. That's not a healthy market for anybody. Uh, as we're getting into seeing days on market of 31 days average, that's a healthier average. Uh, it's, a, it's a good time for people to go and shop the inventory, verify that they really like the house and the area, uh, make sure that they, they can put an offer in with conditions that protect themselves and the sellers. So it's a better market all around. 
And as a realtor, I've got a vested interest in being able to market that property and potentially get some new buyers myself too. So uh, it's it's better for everybody the long if it sits a little bit longer like that. No, I'm not advocating mm -hmm. for you know going like 120, 150 days on market as an average. That's a hard thing. But this is better, and also for investors too, because it it gives them time to to analyze a little bit, to take a look at what some of the income potential is for the neighborhood versus what that property is doing specifically, rather than having to make knee-jerk reactions quickly. So it's it's better for everybody all around. Um, so in in Niagara, it's been a, a pretty pretty good start to the year so far. Uh, everybody's across the board, kind of kind of content with it. One of the things that uh, economists like to see is steady incremental growth. They, they call it a staircase and they, they like to see this swooping up uptick, but in a consistent fashion. And in Niagara, we've had that. We've had a couple of big spike years, uh, but for the most part, it's been very, very consistent since 2000. So um, in the area here, we're also seeing a better quality buyer and not just in terms of, uh, and I don't mean that to sound like people in terms of you know being good or bad that's that's not how it is but in terms of how the, the borrowers are viewed uh the average credit score of somebody buying in niagara now is around 750 and 10 years ago it was 716 which is still not a bad credit score but that's, mm -hmm. that's indicating that people are paying attention and they're doing uh all the right things for mortgages but you're also getting you know, better quality people moving into the area uh, that are going to be an economic benefit for the area. So uh, we're seeing pretty steady unemployment numbers, which is what we like to see. Well, actually, in a perfect world, you see them decreasing and more people working. But but a steady unemployment number is uh, is, is helpful from an economist standpoint, because uh, rather than seeing you know ups and downs and spikes like that, um, there's always going to be a segment of the market that are not able to work for one reason or another. And having it steady is at least saying that, you know, the employment situation in the area is also steady. So uh, we've also got some historically low interest rates again. Uh, we had a bit of an increase in 2018 where they went up three or four times and now they started to drop again. And so we're seeing them at 3.49. You can buy at 3.59. So um Still not, you know, maybe as low as they were. My wife and I had a mortgage years ago at 2.2%. I kind of wouldn't mind going back to that, but... Um, Free money. Yeah, pretty much. So, you know, it's, it's not the absolute historical low, but for an average, it's still on the low side and it's still comfortable. Um, we are noticing a little bit of consumer confidence being tentative more than bullish like it has been um, for a couple of reasons we attribute that is, is the affordability of the properties overall and then that that stress test that was introduced uh, there has been some talk about removing it uh, I don't know whether or not you'll actually see it completely rescinded but um, it did what it was supposed to do so as much as I may not like it for the short term in my business, I realized that it had some long term health benefits for the industry as a whole. And so I, I, I can get behind it once in a while when government implements something that works. It's nice to applaud them for it. So um, the affordability piece is part of what's uh, keeping that consumer confidence down a little bit. Um, you'd have a hard time finding anybody. Yeah, just talking to them on the street who feels that house prices aren't a little bit out of control. Um, even, you know, my, my wife and I live in a home that is valued at significantly more than I would ever consider paying for it because it just seems to me, you know, I was still raised in an era just like you, Jeff, where somebody with a million dollar home was really 
sort of said to have arrived. And, mm. you know, for me to be living in a house that might be seven or $750,000, three quarters of a million just doesn't compute uh, with, with what I was taught growing up. Um, but, you know, that's sort of what's holding that confidence back is people saying, geez, you know, is, is something going to change where that's going to really drastically drop? And nobody really sees that happening. Uh, to, to have that kind of a correction is um, it, it just it just it, it would decimate everything. To, to the tune of uh, you know hundreds of millions of dollars that people are borrowing against homes that have those perceived values, it just couldn't it couldn't happen at this point. Now in Canada, we've taken too many um, safeguards for it. So um, on the upside in Niagara, we are seeing a bit of an increase in immigration, not necessarily uh, an out of country immigration, but more of a intra immigration from within the province. So a lot of buyers are still coming from the uh, the GTA, not specifically Toronto now. Uh, we noticed that a couple of years ago when there was a large disconnect between what we could buy here and what you could sell in Toronto for. But as that gap has narrowed, uh, the Toronto buyer is still thinking more along the lines of Mississauga, Oakville, Burlington, and pushing those buyers down into Niagara now. And so a lot of people from Burlington, a lot of people from Hamilton coming around the lake to see us. Um, and then in demographics, we've noticed a bit of a change down this way into uh, more of a multi-type property. So I'm getting a lot more inquiries from people on in-law suites uh, or uh, townhouses that are attached uh, or townhouses that are attached. That's redundant. <laughs> townhouses or, or semi. I, I knew I knew what you meant. You know what I meant. Yeah. Or yeah. You know, semi semi detached properties um, or, or duplexes that they can rent one side and live in. So the, the multi side is really starting to appeal more to people. Um, and we've noticed that across the board, even on the new starts. So when you look at uh, what, a, what a builder is, is now constructing versus what they were building in 2000, in 2000, it was about 60 to 70 percent single detached homes. And then they were building some semis and some towns. Well, now it's, it's flip flopped completely. And it's about 70 percent new construction being townhouses, uh, mid to high rise condominiums. And the single detached houses are still in certain markets. They're building them in parts of Lincoln, in you know, Beamsville, or um, parts of Hamilton out in Binbrook. But uh, generally speaking, you're going to find a lot of townhouses, a lot of semis now. And that's for a couple of reasons. The first is that uh, they're, they're more affordable. And uh, for a variety of people, first timers, last timers, whatever. Um, but they're also appealing to a group that doesn't want a significant a number uh, amount of, of yard work or outdoor maintenance. Um, my wife and I have four children. And so if we were in a townhouse with no yard to send them into, uh, we probably have fewer children because we would have murdered one of them by now. <laughs> However, yeah. um, if, if you didn't have any children at home or they had already uh, left or you weren't planning on them at all and you didn't want to spend your days looking after a large yard, it's a, it's a very appealing lifestyle piece. So that's part of the reason they're being um, built that way too. So um, yeah. economically, 2018 was the slowest price price growth that we've seen since 2000, uh, with the exception of 2008. And I don't think I need to ruminate uh, on what happened in 2008. I'm fairly sure, sure that most of your listeners remember that year. But uh, and not just because I got married in that year. I'm sure it's actually from the economic <laughs> uh, collapse. But uh, so we didn't see very much growth in 2018, relatively speaking, but it was still growth. And so even mm -hmm. uh, in Niagara did three and a half percent on average 
uh, certain pockets, you know, Grimsby and Lincoln did better than Fort Erie and Welland uh, and, and Port Colburn. But on an average in Niagara, we still did three and a half, almost four percent. And the national average was two. So we still did some pretty significant numbers this way when you put them up against the rest of the country. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I would I'm still fairly bullish on the Niagara market. Yeah, I love the Niagara region. I'm surprised it's taken this long for people to to really discover it. Um, but yeah, it's it's a wonderful spot to be uh, to live and uh, raise a family as well as um, you know start your investment portfolio. So yeah. Um, yeah, I'm heavily invested here, so I may be a little bit biased, but yeah, uh, you and me both. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so as far as foreign investment, yes, what are you seeing going on there? Um, in the major centers, economics, uh, big economic centers, there's still, um, I wouldn't say maybe a majority of foreign investment, but it's still uh, um, still happening and it's more significant than the smaller areas. So places like Niagara Falls, uh, places like Niagara-on-the-Lake, uh, those are the desirable type markets for a non uh, non-resident of Canada to be parking their money because they recognize parts of the name or parts of the attractions. So those are the places that those types of uh, investors are drawn first. Uh, we are still seeing you know, people parking money here for Airbnbs in Niagara and Lake or um, student housing around Brock. Uh, you know, there is some um, overseas investment for that, if, especially if maybe they have a, a child or you know, they're sending a student here, they'll buy the property for the few years that their son or daughter is attending and then sell it off in the future. Um, so there is still some foreign investment, but I haven't, personally noticed it being of significant consequence. I wouldn't, I wouldn't even put it up in the 20% range. So. Okay. Well, thank you for the economic update. Uh, greatly appreciated. We'll yeah. definitely. You need to be able uh, to tap the headsets now and wake people back up. <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah, we'll keep it short and sweet. But uh, yeah, we'll definitely have you back on again sometime in the future to give us another uh, update because I think for most investors, uh, well, for all investors, it's wise to be aware of what's going on in the cities and uh, areas that you're investing in, right? So uh, we'll definitely have you back on to give us an update uh, in the future. But for now, let's dive into uh, one of the things I like to dig into a little bit with experienced investors is some of the failures, you know, on a lot of the YouTube videos or podcasts or shows, we talk about all the successes and how wonderful things can be. But I find uh, that the, some of the failures are uh, where you learn your most valuable lessons. So for you, yeah. reflecting back on your real estate investment career, um, can you share with us a time that uh, that perhaps you you failed and what lessons you learned from that? Oh yeah, I sure can. They don't come necessarily as quick to my mind as the successes, just because I don't tend to dwell on them. But uh, um, yeah, there there have been a variety of lessons that we've learned uh, over the investment sphere, and and part of it is um, what when you're, for example, using a, a one of our flip projects. Um, when we when we did the flip project on it. We dragged our feet a little bit in the beginning um, by making some decisions that kind of held us back um, from finishing it on the right time frame. And in May of 2017, we were supposed to be finished. And we didn't finish till the 1st of June. And we missed 
the the superheated 2017 market. Um, early on in the year, January, February, March, April, we're just screaming right along. And then the government put in uh, some legislation in May uh, that was designed to cool it down and cool it down it did. The switch just flipped right off on the 1st of June when we listed the property and we still made money on it, but we didn't make anywhere near what we were anticipating to uh, because we carried it longer and it was, you know, we just missed, we just missed that market. So um, you can't always, you can't always time things, but you have to build in enough of a buffer on your property, uh, on, on a flip property anyway, to be able to carry it through some of those circumstances beyond your control. Uh, I mean, mm -hmm. We may have anticipated that the market was going to change a little bit, but we didn't know the effect that the government legislation would have uh, at that at that time. So yeah, that kind of held us back uh, a little bit there. And then the other one is on a couple of projects, making sure you get the right contractors for uh, the, the variety for, for the vast majority of our projects. We use a contractor with whom uh, we were aligned both with um, our business model and our business plan and also just morally. We were just, you know, in line with, okay, we're going to do it right. We'll find the cheapest way to do it right, but we're going to do it right. Um, and then a couple of projects we've done with contractors with a slightly different mindset and it was, you know, maximizing the profit for them. Um, and so there were some corners cut and we've ended up you know, having some problems with uh, townships and that because of permit problems because they cut here and cut there. And so really making sure that, that you vet your contractor and that you're in alignment with uh, them very well uh, is, is another piece that's, that's pretty critical because unless you're doing the work yourself, you're putting complete trust in this other person to do it. Great. Great. And it, has that been the, the, the biggest setback you found over the years or? Um, no, I wouldn't say the biggest setback. The biggest setback. Give is, us the biggest one. Biggest Let's go setback, deep. Uh, probably finding, probably finding the right property. Okay. Uh, any property can work for somebody, but it doesn't always work for, uh, for you as the person. And, and we've, we've got one uh, that, that we saw it and we said, geez, there's a ton of potential here. It's a big lot. It's a big house. It's a beautiful street. It's a dynamite neighborhood. Everybody's going to love this. And for some reason, we're not able to figure it out even to this day. For some reason, we were wrong. We missed it. We renovated it beautifully. It's a great lot. It's a great street, all those things. And we missed it. We just did not create the value that people were looking for with it. And, um, you know, it, it costs us an awful lot of headaches. So really uh, trying to anticipate what buyers are going to do is, is tough. So don't necessarily assume every project's going to work. And uh, stretching yourself on very high dollar ones isn't always the best way to start. You know, those two and $300,000 houses, $400,000 houses, you can sell those all day long. But once you start getting a little more ambitious, and saying, oh, you know, hey, this one that I'm going to buy for 450 and sell for 850 with, uh, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars worth of rentals, no problem. Uh, sometimes those are a bit of a problem. They can take a little longer to do. They cause you more headaches because the finishing levels have to be at different um, stages. And stuff. So, yeah, it's 
I, I would less, encourage you. less qualified buyers at that price point yeah, as well. I would, I would consider staying in that price range, uh, especially especially starting out if you don't have the uh, the financial depth. Great, so. great. Now, I I heard you mentioned uh, a couple of times that over the years you've gone to courses, you've invested in programs and and mentorship and coaching. Um, can you share with us some of the most valuable lessons uh, that you learned as a result of of your education? Well, that's that's a that's a great question, Jeff. Um, one of the one of the best lessons wasn't taught directly. Uh, it was taught by two or three different people. And I came to the conclusion uh, on my own that um, the only danger you have as an investor is thinking you know it all. And a few of them have said that is, you know, just just because you've come to a few investment seminars and you flipped a few properties or you own a few rentals, markets change, investment styles change buyers, sellers, all of those things are different. And you need to continually educate yourself. And it was it was hard for us at first to to assume that because you know you, you go to grade school, then you go to high school, maybe you go to university or, or trade school or something, and then you're done and you're out in the workforce. And there isn't that same um, culture to continue lifelong learning uh, as an adult. But every uh, seminar we go to, that's sort of the takeaway message is you need to keep learning. You need to keep trying something new, changing it up, um, making that repeated investment in your education. And for us, like we're going to one this October, and it's the only one we've made it to this year for, um, it's not an investment piece, it's just a just another education piece about how to integrate family into businesses and some of those things. However, um, I've adopted the mindset that doesn't matter what I pay out, as long as I get something from everything I go to, it's worthwhile. And so I would say that's probably one of the biggest takeaways we've learned from our, our education is to just continually get educated no matter what. No course is going to offer you everything you need to know about doing one particular thing. Yeah, that certainly holds true for me as well. You know, I've been investing in real estate for a little over 20 years now, and I continue to invest in my education. I continue to learn and grow, um, you know, very helpful to do that. And again, as we mentioned before, surrounding yourself with others that have perhaps done something that you haven't yet done. So yeah, the educational piece is vital for success, but for the the new real estate investor that's thinking, wow, there's so much to learn and do. The one thing I want to caution you about is um, not to let that lack of, of education prevent you from getting started. Right. Absolutely. There's no, there's no way you're going to learn everything you need to know. Um, So it's about, you know, getting a nice solid foundation, building your team, surrounding yourself with people that can help you, and then getting in the game and learning as you go, right? Yeah. Because if you wait to to try and know it all, you'll never get in the game. So, no, well, that's that's just it. That's a, that's a great piece to touch on, Jeff, because um, you know, just like the term "self-made millionaire" is a little bit delusional uh, and a little bit deceptive. That you know, very few people can actually do it on their own. Um, 
you know, you, you've created the empire that you have by partnering with people to help. And I've done the same with some private lending. You know, if I had to wait until I had a million dollars in my bank account to go and fund all of these projects start to finish, <clears throat> I wouldn't have done one yet. Yeah. And I'll, I'll take it even one step further. Um, you said very few people and there's actually not a single person. Nobody has ever created wealth on their own ever. Well, you're, you're probably right, but the, the diplomacy in me wants to allow for that one possibility. <laughs> it's, it's impossible. You I need, mean, uh, Jesus could do it on his own. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Even he had, uh, father's help. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he had his father's help, right? So, I mean, even yeah. he needed help. I, I think, you know, and that's uh, something too, because a lot of us are taught, you know, I don't want to bother anybody. I don't want to ask for help. I don't want to seem vulnerable. I don't want to appear stupid. We've yep. got all these beliefs built up inside ourselves that, that hinder us and hold us back, right? And it's just about, uh, like, literally the the number one thing is is education and part of that education is surrounding yourself with a team of people that can help you there's not not a single multimillionaire on this planet that has built their success on their own not one yeah. no right way. and so so you know the self-made millionaire is uh is absolutely a myth right and it uh, it it's one of the things that held me back very early on because I bought into that where, hey, I can do it on my own. I, I think I'll save some money by doing it on my own, yeah. right? I don't need to invest in the education. And uh, that that uh, cost me tremendous amount of time and money. So, uh, yeah. Awesome. Well, that has been uh, very enlightening and very helpful. And I, I certainly appreciate your time here today. And um, yeah. Yeah, thanks for coming out. And like I said before, we will definitely have you uh, back on the show in the future to give us an economical update. Now, before we uh, conclude today's show, uh, if somebody wants to reach out to you, how can they get in touch? Well, uh, they have a few different options. Uh, you can find me on Facebook. I don't have very uh, high privacy settings at all. <laughs> okay. um, my, uh, my email address is andrew at Remax Escarpment. Dot com. Don't forget okay. that silent P in escarpment. Uh, cell phone numbers. Uh, well, I'm basically a, a legalized prostitute, so it's always with me. You can get me at 905-577-1934. You may be getting the wrong kind of calls. <laughs> so. So yeah, when I have a corner office, that's not what I mean. Eh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah, so probably be the best email or, or uh, the cell at uh, yeah, would be the best. All right. And we'll definitely uh, add that in the show notes so All that right. uh, people can reach out to you for uh, wisdom or, or realtor services or bad and... joke, whatever they'd like. <laughs> yes. All right. Perfect. Thank you, Andrew. Appreciate your time. Take care. My pleasure, Jeff. We'll talk to you again. Thank you for listening to the Care More Work Less Show. To access the show notes from this show or for more resources on real estate, business, wealth creation, and liberation, head on over to jeffreywoods.com. That's J-E-F-F-E-R-Y woods.com. If you found this show valuable, head on over to iTunes and leave a five-star review. It's greatly appreciated. And until next time, remember, the more you care, the less you work. <laughs>